Hello and welcome to Relevant Tones. My name is Austin Williams and I'll be your host today. I think I say this every time I have the chance to host this show, but this is truly a unique episode and feature we will be hosting today. This two-part series will take a deep dive into the Lakota music project the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra has been working on for the past 13 years or so. The first piece you heard on the program was Desert Wind, composed by Jeffrey Paul. Without going into too much detail, I'm sure you can tell that this is an eclectic collaboration between Native Lakota Music and the Symphony Orchestra. I had the honor and privilege to speak with the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra Music Director, Delta David Geyer, and a special soloist and Native Lakota Tribe member, Brian Akipa, about the Lakota Music Project, 
gaining powerful insights on this beautiful relationship and collaboration that has developed over the past years. Brian Akiba is a specialist in the natural wood flute, which is prominently featured in many of the tracks in this first part. The second part will feature a different, prominent characteristic found in much of the music. More on that towards the end. For now, please enjoy this interview with music director Delta David Geyer and special soloist Brian Akiba. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Delta David Geyer and uh, Brian Akipa. David is the music director of the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra. And Brian, you're a uh, flute player in the ensemble, correct? Yes. Correct. Awesome. Great. Um, Well, it's a traditional, indigenous, traditional red cedar flute. Got it. And so what we're talking about today is the uh, Lakota music project that the symphony has been uh, doing for quite some time. Uh, David mentioned earlier uh, that it's been going on for about 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. The planning of it goes back four or five years before that. Oh, wow. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a long-term project. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, I mean, that's awesome to hear. Like I, you know, again, I thought it was maybe like a recent thing, but the fact that this has been like a, an ongoing project is, is pretty phenomenal. Um, I have a couple questions, um, that are, um, maybe less about the music, but, um, but we can obviously we're going to talk about the music because of it. Um, but I, I'm just curious because I'm kind of removed from this being based in Chicago, um, in the city proper, but what does this project mean for the native community or the community in like South Dakota? Um, and how, since now that I have the context that's been going on for a long time, like what's, um, been the development of it over that time? Well, one of the outcomes that I've, seen especially just recently is people in the community the tribal members and non-tribal members uh, recognized me and said well you're the well, i went to the vote for the state elections and tribal elections and when i went in there they said you're the flute player so <laughs> people in the voting booths are <clears throat> even recognized me and People you'd never think would talk to me mm. uh, would come up and, and say they seen me on TV or they seen heard I was playing with the symphony or, and things like that. Sure. Um, so you'd say that this project has definitely brought more of a face of the native population or the um, tribe to maybe the the general public or something of that something like that yeah they're seeing stuff on tv and they're hearing about the performances and so people are talking and, and so they're knowing they know about it sure sure uh so the, the yeah genesis, david the genesis of the project was uh you know i guess going all the way back my first season as music director at south dakota symphony is 2004 um and I, I came, I mean, I moved out here from New York City. Uh, so um, I was sort of taking, a, taking the pulse of what the orchestra had been doing mm-hmm. in terms of community relations, uh, engagement, um, education, all the things that we do that an orchestra does off the stage. And um, 
I was I was surprised after you know living my whole adult life in New York City that um, that there was prejudice against Native Americans in South Dakota. Yeah, of course, if you live here, that's kind of the reality. Mm-hmm. And so I I found myself one evening at a at a uh, reception talking to a young African American woman who was in charge of the Martin Luther King Day activities in Sioux Falls. Mm-hmm. And um, I suggested to her that we might work together. Um, a lot of orchestras do MLK concerts, so on and so forth. And she smiled and nodded. And she said, David, I don't have the kind of issues you think I have. If you want to talk about racial prejudice in South Dakota, it's against Native Americans. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a shock for me. So what do you do with information like that as a music director of an orchestra? So we, we held a, we held a lunch at the end of that first season that I was here. That would have been spring of 2005 for, um, for Lakota leaders in the area. And I came in with a bunch of my, my own ideas, but, but I was, I was basically met with distrust. Mm-hmm. Um, what's in it for you? Who's making money? Mm-hmm. This kind of thing. And as I've learned very clearly uh, over the course of my tenure here, is there's a, a big foundation for that kind of distrust. Yeah. And so it was my first lesson in learning to to listen. Uh, and so at, um, that was the beginnings of what would later become the Lakota Music Project.
Austin, I could just give you a quick sketch from that point forward. Yeah. We basically spent four years developing what would become Lakota Music Project. Sure, These sure. encounters with, with, with musicians like Brian that was part of the process. Yeah. There was a, there was a pivotal point, uh, probably, probably the winter of 2008, where we spent a, a very, very interesting evening on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation mm-hmm. um, with a, a drumming group called the New Porcupine Singers and our principal musicians, which is uh, so the Dakota String Quartet and the Dakota Wind Quintet. Mm-hmm. And um, we spent four hours in a kind of jam session in a way. Um, yeah. Super awkward to begin with. Yeah. Like everybody <laughs> was like, what are we doing here? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, let's just start playing music for each other. So we started and, um, and you know, string quartet would play a piece and talk a little bit about it. And yeah. The drumming group would play a piece and talk about it. And, so and, uh, another, I mean, you're, you're definitely getting into this. Another question I had is like with the, uh, you know, the orchestra being of a Western classical tradition and then obviously the introduction of um, native practice in a lot of these pieces that are, were recorded. What, was the collaboration process like with that? And it sounds like it kind of started um, with what you're talking about here in kind of humble beginnings. Yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. There was a there was a pivotal moment during that that snowy evening in Pine Ridge, where the keeper of the drum, Melvin Youngbear, stood up and said, "We sing the old songs, the traditional songs." And our hope is that we will pass these songs on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. And I said, bingo, that's exactly what we do. We mm-hmm. have 500 years worth of music and we hope to leave our art form better than we found it sure. and pass it on. Sure. And so that became a, 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 a natural musical bridge. And this was before we had commissioned any music to be part of the project that would be new music, you know, so that we began the project you know, any Lakota music project uh, performance by playing music back and forth for each other from our different traditions and having a public discussion about the role of music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Brian, were you there for some of those first interactions? I came a little bit later. Mm -hmm. During the Lakota music project, they had a composition academy. Okay. And that's how I got introduced there and, and started then. Sure, sure. What was your experience um, kind of, I'm, I'm assuming your background was more in uh, traditional uh, uh, native cultural music. So what was your experience kind of transitioning um, and learning more about like a Western classical tradition? It was really slow <laughs> for me. And yeah. so I was glad the symphony and all the musicians were patient with me. Mm-hmm. And it really helped a lot. And Jeff Paul was one of the main ones that really taught me a lot. And yeah, that's who I worked together with. Right. So I was gonna, I was actually gonna ask you. Um, I guess this is a good time to do it. The the piece "Wind on a um, Clear Lake" that um, was recorded is um, specifically wrote, written for you as a soloist. Um, do you just want to talk about that piece and like the collaboration and what it, what it means to you and everything like that? Jeff came up here and Gene Rasmussen would, he stayed at their cabin at Clear Lake 
<clears throat> and there is a lake here called Clear Lake. And I went up there to visit with him and we talked quite a bit and I played the flute for him and he could hear it mm-hmm. and the notes that it was playing and the scale mm. is to give him an idea of what, how, what he has to work with. And I had an album called Song of the Aspen and I made a song but it was experience with the wind blowing through the aspen tree. And that kind of got the idea for having wind on Clear Lake and he could hear the wind blowing through the cabin, blowing through the windows, blowing through the trees right off of the lake. And this has inspired the melody for him. I mean, it's beautiful, the flute sounds. You said it's, can you remind me again what your flute's made out of? It's a red cedar? It's so an eastern red cedar. Yeah, yeah. That's a it's a gorgeous instrument. Um, I had the 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 privilege to actually learn a little bit more about wood flutes um, in some of my training, um, and there's just the variety of colors and timbres you can get out of different instruments. is It's really cool. It's it's very very fascinating. Um, so that's what I was when I heard that piece. It kind of it drew me in a bit more because of that. Yeah, and it really adds a relaxing feeling and that's what the traditional flute is about sure is uh, having a relaxing uh, music and i think that's what that uh, song adds to the album for sure so, so brian was really humble when he s- talked about the symphony <laughs> being patient with him but the fact is i mean if you talk to jeff about composing that piece he'll actually tell you that he worked hard to make sure that everybody was equally uncomfortable it's it's uh and this is you know it's we're not talking about a project that tried to squeeze native traditional uh lakota or dakota music into a european classical mold it wasn't the point of this at all Mm -hmm. um and you'll you know like two of the composers on the recording are are uh, native american one is mohican the other is chickasaw Okay, and um, you know they're very fluent with with uh, writing Western classical music for uh, in uh, you know expressing you know traditional Native culture in that both Brent Michael Davids and Jared Tate. Sure. So uh, so Jeff was 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 working within that same context of like how do we how do we actually build this bridge in a way that is even even across both cultures because mm-hmm. the entire point of lakota music project is that we're on a level playing field we're treating each other with respect um we're 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 making music together we're not talking about you know our differences we're we're, we're just sharing something that we love mm-hmm. which is music and we all love music that's really the point and i would say brian you can chime in if you want, um, that we've gone beyond that at this point, because, you know, we've, we've been on the road together, uh, off and on now for the last 12, 13 years. And, um, you know, we slept in bad hotels together. We've eaten bad food together, (laughs) all of that great touring stuff. And, Mm -hmm. and we've gone to the place where we're friends and we're simply sharing music as friends. Yeah. And, um, you know, like that, that's, that's the thing that makes me happiest Yeah, is that, you know, I can call Brian to keep a friend. 
I can call Emmanuel Black Bear a friend. When 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 Emmanuel got COVID a couple of years ago, we were texting every day, just yeah. like friends do. It's like, yeah. come on, let's just be friends. Yeah, yeah.
Great. And you, you, you touched on this a little bit, but I was um, curious about maybe some of the connection that some of the composers had to the project or the um, native population in the area and how they, you know, how those collaborations came about. Well, the prime example is what Brian just explained, this yeah. wind of a clear lake. Because uh, Brian, you, you basically, you and Jeff composed that together, right? Um, he, he, I think he did most of it, most of the, the melody and interpreting the way the wind sounded, mm. but I had to really work with him because I know there was one note I couldn't get and another note that was difficult to, to do on a flute, traditional flute. Sure. Sure. So... <clears throat> So we had to work, work with those things. I'm actually, I'm kind of curious on, on your flute, if it was translated into like a Western classical, um, you know, notation or scale, what, what is it um, most like, or what's it, um, what are you dealing with there? Actually, my friend, Kevin Locke, he just passed away. We've been working on that. Mm. And what we're saying is that the traditional music has their own scale mm, mm-hmm. and so we're so now that he's gone it kind of set me back a little bit yeah but talking to his wife and talking uh i made friends with the the world flute society uh, the executive director and she's interested in, in those things too mm-hmm. so <clears throat> to really describe the scale it's um i think i think you you'll be able to and there'll be more than one scale for sure and i think the whole genre of native scales that i find will we're going to just title them kevin Locke's uh, dakota name the tokaha Inaji, and the first to arise mm-hmm. and so that'll be the general name but many of the scales are based on birds. Mm. And I com- made a song, I composed it based on a metal arc. And that fit perfectly wow. on a traditional scale. In general, the flutes that are out there in the United States all over, mm-hmm. they commercialized it and <clears throat> They also standardized it, and most of them are on a pentatonic minor scale. Mm-hmm. And so that scale, you can't always play traditional songs on it mm-hmm. accurately the way it should be played. So <clears throat> comparing the music to them, it's, well, we did it so it can be done. Sure. And <clears throat> I know that I had to work on getting my flutes closer to in tune, mm. which is different than the scale we're getting it, getting <laughs> it tuned up to. to yeah. Them. yeah. I mean, it sounds like, um, I mean, aside from the, the individual pitches or the, the sound that or it's the, the timbre is just as important and the texture is just as important as like the, the pitches that you're getting out of it because you're talking about, matching with you know the the rustling of the trees or like with with a lot of natural sounds um and i think that's a 
something I've learned through just asking people who work more with um, indigenous or native instruments. It's it's always and we something that's kind of lost in a lot of Western classical tradition is like trying to bring it back to like a natural um, or being within that like state. Yeah, it's it, it's um, it's a tricky thing, and you can you can work with it or you can ignore it. Like you could, yeah. you can do a sort of clashing of, of the traditions. I'm thinking of like Lou, Har- Lou Harrison's piano concerto, which retunes the piano mm-hmm. and the harps, mm-hmm. you know, in mm-hmm. a, in a Balinese uh, gamelan kind of tuning and leaves the rest of the orchestra as is. Right. Right. So there's a, you know, sort of grinding of cultures there. Right. But uh, and and I, I suppose there's some of that going on with us as well. We do we do uh, what we can. It's it's quite amazing the process of putting this music together. Oh. Um, the amount of uh, flexibility sure. that everyone displays. Yeah. Um, that's again very very satisfying as a music director of an orchestra to. to just see that everybody's in the game. Yeah. Like everybody wants to see this happen. And right. the patience that's required is required of everybody. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, to try to understand, you know, what adjustments need to be made. And I could give you beaucoup examples sure. of, of, of rehearsal processes that, that brought us there. Um, I think it's it's necessary though, because if you know you're trying to strong arm one side of it or another, it's just it's just not going to work, or you're not going to get a you know a good result that you would want to use. Well, yeah, I mean the well, here's a good example. the The first piece on the recording is uh, is uh, Black Hills of Loan, which mm-hmm. means Song of the Black Hills mm-hmm. by Brent Michael Davids. It was the first piece we commissioned for this uh, Lakota Music Project, and. At that point in time, uh, the American Composers Forum, based in St. Paul, had a wing called First Nations Composers Initiative, mm-hmm. and Brent was a part of that, and and that actually funded this commission. And so, uh, Brent actually took a traditional Lakota song mm-hmm. and wove it into an orchestral texture. So everything that the drumming group is singing during Black Hills of Loan is a traditional Lakota song. Sure. It's a song that they all already know. There are snippets of it, and you get the full-on rendition at the end. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, but, you know, as we learned very quickly, um, for these guys in the drumming group, pitch and tempo are governed by emotion. Mm. They're not fixed. Yeah. Even matching pitch is is not something that's generally required. Mm-hmm. But of course, Brent had to pick pitches for them to sing. Mm-hmm. And he gave them, you know, if you listen carefully to the piece, you can hear that each entrance that the drumming group has is has a little preview in the orchestra, you know, somewhere in the orchestra. Yep. And but you know that was a process. Right. For you know for getting everybody to listen to each other so that we could find that that pitch, you know, and and then the, you know and we had to be willing to adjust our tempo, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that it would align with the traditional song, you know. Sometimes the things would grind to a halt and say, "Well, no, 
the, the drumming the drumming group would say, "No, no, that's not how the song goes." <laughs> like, okay, so <laughs> yeah. I'm looking at my score. I got my head buried in my score. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like that's what it says here. And they're like, "No, right. it doesn't do that." <laughs> and the composer's sitting there, and he goes, "Like, well, do what they tell you to do. Don't forget what I wrote. Yeah, do what yeah. they said." You sure. Know? <laughs> But that, uh, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the process. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I imagine there was, there was probably some moments of, you know, it's just understanding, you know, people um, sharing culture and um, background with one another. And, you know, you, people don't always know, but um, that's, I, I don't know. That's cool. That's, that's, that's what we want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the, one of the last things I just I wanted to bring up is the um, the feature of the voice in almost every piece on this album, and I guess I'm not surprised by it, but it's just like it's such a prominent um, figure, and in itself is kind of its own you know ensemble within the orchestra. Um, and you did talk, you, you already touched on you know how how you navigated working with you know the the voices in the orchestra and what that was like um brian are you a are you a singer or do you just play flute no i don't i don't sing okay yeah but uh, your songs are the songs you play on the flute brian did you not tell me that i mean generally they are songs that are also sung yeah <clears throat> so i can sing them but i don't try to do that for anybody sure <laughs> or in front of anybody <laughs> we wouldn't want to hear you sing yeah that. they don't want to <laughs> yeah yeah that was part one of this two-part series with the South Dakota Symphony Orchestra and the Lakota Music Project. Towards the end there, we began to get into the conversation about the oral tradition and the voice in native Lakota music. Uh, I'm here to tell you that part two will almost exclusively be about that. Um, and let me tell you, there's quite a story that goes along with the piece that we're going to be featuring. So you're not going to want to miss it and stay tuned for that. But for now, I hope you enjoyed the first part of the two-part series. And we'll catch you next week with the other one. As always, Relevant Tones is a product of Access Contemporary Music. Find out more at acmusic.org, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks. <laughs>